Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're taking a deep dive into the human genome, discovering how the latest release of half a million whole genome sequences from UK Biobank will help medical research, plumbing the depths of the dark genome in search of new ways to treat disease, and pondering how much of the human genome is actually just junk. Before we start, I'd like to get to know you a little bit better. Specifically, the Genetic Society, who have generously supported this podcast over the past five years, would like to know a bit more about our listeners and what you like, so we can make podcasts that really hit the spot. So if you could hop over to geneticsunzip.com survey and spend just a minute or two filling in our simple questionnaire, we'd be very grateful. And if you like, you can enter a prize draw to win a signed copy of my recent book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life. Thank you. Cast your mind back to the early 2000s, if you can. For our younger listeners, ask a parent and make them feel really old. The draft human genome had just been published, and the scientific world was waking up to the possibility of exploring our DNA and its connection to disease in unprecedented detail. Against this backdrop, a group of British scientists embarked on one of the most ambitious biomedical research projects ever undertaken, UK Biobank. Over three years, half a million adult participants were recruited from across the UK to take part, providing biological samples for DNA sequencing and biomarker testing, along with plenty of other information about their health and lifestyle. This laid the foundation for a treasure trove of data which is still being added to today as the research team continues to measure and monitor participants as they age. Initially, like many similar large-scale research projects, UK Biobank focused on sequencing exomes, that's just genes themselves, which make up less than 2% of the human genome. But now they've gone the whole way. At the end of November, UK Biobank announced a significant milestone in the project, the release of whole genome sequence data from all half a million participants. After five years of work, more than 350,000 hours of sequencing time, and more than £200 million investment from government, non-profit and industry funders, this represents the largest single set of genome sequencing data ever to be released, by quite some margin. But it's not just the size that's important, it's what we can do with this data that counts. I sat down with Professor Naomi Allen, Chief Scientist at UK Biobank, to find out why this data set is so valuable and why it's so important that these sequences are whole genomes rather than just genes. So the whole genome sequencing enables researchers to look at all of the genetic variation across the entire genome. So not just in the 2% of the genome that encodes for proteins, it's looking at all of the genetic variation, much of which has previously been considered to be called junk DNA, precisely because we didn't know what it did. So now that we have this information on variation across the whole of our genomes, it will enable really robust research into how variation across the entire length of our genetic makeup influences health and disease risk. 
why is this information, these whole genome sequences, so useful? What can researchers do to find out more about the links between DNA variations in it and disease? So I think when you combine the whole genome sequencing data on half a million people together with all of the other lifestyle, environment and health data we have on these individuals, it will enable researchers to better understand the role of genetics in the causes of various health outcomes. That is why some individuals develop certain particular diseases and other people's don't over time. It will also enable researchers to do much better risk prediction. So, for example, using the whole genome sequencing data, it will lead to a much greater ability for us to characterise an individual's genetic risk of developing, say, breast cancer. So rather than using just a BRCA mutation, you can use all of the genetic variation across an individual's genome, find out which 10% of women, say, are at very high genetic risk of developing the disease, who can then be targeted for earlier screening or more intensive mammograms. So it's really important for risk prediction. And I'd also say that it could be potentially transformative for finding new drugs. So if we find that rare genetic variants across the whole genome are associated with particular health characteristic, then that will give new insights into drug targets that could be used to treat those diseases. It's really incredible to see how our understanding of how genetics and genomics influence health has has really transformed within my lifetime, going from finding single genes that are linked to disease to realising that most diseases are to do with many, many genes and that there are many, many variations, most of which are not in the genes themselves. It does paint a picture of incredible complexity. And I guess that's why we need incredibly complex data to understand this. Well, that's right. And I think, you know, there's been so much hype over the years about precision medicine or personalised medicine. And I actually think the release of the whole genome sequencing data will start to lead to research that can really make tangible strides in that area. Because, for example, we might be able to identify subgroups with the population who are more or less likely to respond to treatment based on their genetic profile or who are more or less likely to experience side effects of certain drugs based on their genetic profile. So you can see how having this data and linking it to disease and other health characteristics could potentially lead to much more targeted precision medicine approaches for the whole population. But of course, the big question is, who gets access to it? Could I get a hold of it? What kind of checks are in place to control who actually gets to access this data, to rummage around in it and do that kind of research? Yeah, so that's a really important question. So health-related researchers can access the data. So all researchers are vetted carefully. So researchers have to come from a valid research institute that could be from academia or it could be from commercial companies. We look at their publication record to make sure that they are actually performing health-related research in the public interest. All applications to use the data are carefully assessed and we monitor the research output of each and every application to make sure it falls within the remit of the approved research. And of course, it's important to say that only ever 
de-identified data is made available to researchers. So by that, I mean that we will never release data on names, addresses, date of birth, NHS number, and so on. And for the whole genome sequencing data, these data are made available via a cloud-based, secure research analysis platform so that researchers can access these very large data very securely on the cloud and to perform in situ analyses. So the data are not being downloaded by researchers all over the world. What kinds of research, what kinds of progress have already come from the data that's already in UK Biobank? It's impossible to use the genetic data that we've previously released for researchers to develop polygenic risk scores that identify very early on in life individuals with a high genetic risk of developing a particular disease. So one of the first examples was a polygenic risk score for heart disease that identified about 8% of the population that had triple the normal risk of heart disease, which is often equivalent to that of what we think of a single gene disorder. So that means that you could potentially use these genetic tools to identify individuals who are at high genetic risk for, you know, further preventative strategies. So that's been a really important early win, I would say, of the use of genetic data for population-based interventions for early screening. We're now seeing the rise of technologies that people can wear. I'm thinking of things like, you know, watches and and various types of monitors that can provide more ongoing data about health. Are you trying to bring those sorts of technologies into the UK Biobank? Well, yes, actually in 2014, we gave 100,000 participants a smartwatch to wear for seven days. And analyses on that data have already shown that differences in physical activity patterns can predict Parkinson's disease up to seven years before diagnosis, which is astonishing if you think about it, because you can, you can start to see how these types of data that many of the population are actually, you know, are wearing Fitbit data could potentially be used in the future to diagnose disease earlier and hence start treatment earlier when it's much more effective, especially for something like Parkinson's when it takes years to get a proper diagnosis. What are your hopes for the future of UK Biobank, its data, its opportunities, the things you want to do next? So we we really would love to be able to bring all of our existing very altruistic participants back to do a repeat of all of the measures they generously gave to us at baseline so we can enable assessment of change over a 15 to 20 year period so we can look at how participants have aged over that time and to also better characterize health outcomes. So for example, we know that of the participants who are diagnosed with dementia, about half of them, we don't know what type of dementia they have. So can we bring participants back to have a brain scan, to have blood samples done so that we can better identify the type of dementia they have, which will enable much more accurate research into the development of treatments for specific subtypes of disease. So that's the sort of thing we really like to do over the next couple of years. It's much better characterization of health outcomes and assessment of aging and frailty and cognition and dementia. 
So I think over time, the resource just becomes more informative rather than less informative. And we, we'd hope to be following up our participants for many decades to come. As Naomi has described, we need to look further than just the 2% of the genome that is genes if we're to understand how changes in our DNA influence our risk of disease and to find more effective treatments. But exploring this non-coding DNA, or dark genome, isn't easy. Finding the connections between the many genes that are linked to most health conditions, the millions of possible DNA variations in the dark genome, their influence on gene activity, and their impact on different cell types to cause disease, has been an almost impossible task. Until now. Danuta Yezerska is the co-founder and CEO of Nucleome Therapeutics, a company that has spun out of Oxford University with a new set of technologies for exploring the dark genome in unprecedented detail to reveal new ideas for treatments for some of the most challenging health conditions where we still need to do so much more. So if you think about it, we have 22,000 genes in our genome and uh, we can compare that to have 22,000 ingredients in the fruit. We um, have the same set to create different meals and this is the same. We have the same DNA within each cell, but then we have hundreds of different cell types. So this dark genome determines the combination of ingredients of the genes that you you take and at which level you use them to produce different cell types that build our body. And you can just imagine that if you make a mistake in that, so let's say that you add the wrong ingredients in the wrong meal, you can mess up the, the meal and in the same way you can mess up the cell type. So if you, for example, don't produce enough of hemoglobin to transport oxygen around the body, you will end up with a genetic form of anemia. Or if you turn on a gene that's supposed to not be turned on, like an oncogene, you may end up having cancer. So dark genome is now very well understood as the mechanism uh, that is causing diseases. So tell me a bit about what's going on when, when genes and their switches are coming together. Those switches, those regulatory elements are often not really close to genes they regulate, then can be even megabases away. They can be even within a different gene. And very much what happens is that when the gene is turned on, those regulatory switches are coming in close proximity and they physically interact to turn the gene on. So it's simply showing how the cell works and is able to change the shape of the DNA to be able to interpret the genome in a different way. And I think as well, then you've got this added layer of complexity, because again, we can think about, okay, we've got a chromosome, it's one piece of DNA string, we're going to make a loop, we're going to bring the switch and the gene together. And then you go, right, cool, but every single cell has got like two meters of DNA. There's, it's not one string, it's a lot of strings. There's, there's some really complicated three-dimensional organization, but presumably that's not the same in every cell if every cell needs a different load of genes turned on and off. So there are multiple different layers. So there will be, as you know, chromosomes, there will be then the topological associated domains, but then will be also within those domains, the loops the enhancer-promoter interactions happening. Some of them are more 
stable across different cell types, but very much there is a lot of ongoing dynamics going there. The key here is that there is a lot of variation that exists between different humans, but there is also a lot of variation that is linked with diseases. And simply originally, again, it was quite a surprise that not all of the variation is taking place within genes, but the disease causal variation also is happening in, in the dark genome. And those genetic changes are impacting the function of those regulatory elements, or also the elements that are involved in determining the structure of the DNA. And, and then they translate into the dysregulation of the gene expression and, and different diseases. I think this is something that a lot of people don't get. And it took me a lot longer to get it than maybe I should have done. Because we're taught at school, you know, you have one gene that does a thing, it encodes a protein, you have a mutation in that gene, you get a mutation in the protein, and then you get a disease. But then when we started to have genome sequencing technology that we could look at loads and loads of genes, we could look across the whole genome, and you find that, is it is it 10% of the variations that we know about linked to disease are only in genes? Exactly, exactly. Th there is also the fact that there are monogenic diseases that are caused by one mutation, and those are more easy to interpret, although it's still still sometimes very challenging, but also many common diseases that many of us struggle with are polygenic. So this is like rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis. Those diseases involve multiple genetic changes that often happen across the genome. And 90% of those are located within this dark genome. And simply what happens is that they most likely impact the process of gene regulation and they dysregulate different genes. And there is the cumulative effect that happens across pathways because those different genes are involved in signaling pathways and dysregulation and accumulation of those changes are really causing diseases. And it's, it's quite fascinating when the human genome was sequenced. Back then, it was quite challenging to interpret that. So let's drill into what you're actually doing at Nucleome to understand this complexity. There are millions of variations in DNA not located in genes that may or may not be linked to disease, may affect gene regulation, may affect DNA packing. I mean, I remember when I when I was writing my book in 2016, I was like, oh God, that's a really big problem. I hope someone figures out how to make these connections between the switches and the genes and figure out what's going on. And it, it sounds like you found a way to do that. So tell me about what you're actually doing. Yes. So as you mentioned, there is a lot of variation between humans. So the key question, which one is really linked with disease? And then also which one is, is causal? This was quite hard to find. The next challenge was that you need to know in which cell type to look. Because as uh, we discussed, the dark genome defines cell type specificity. So you need to know in which cell type to look to be able to interpret that. The next one is that you need to know which gene is affected. So simply, as we mentioned, that those genetic changes and regulatory elements, they can be sometimes really far away from the gene they affect. And in the past, historically, people were looking on DNA as linear structure, and they were not able to easily link those things together. And the last challenge is also the causality challenge. 
is really this variant impacting this gene to translate to disease. Sometimes I really compare that to Cluedo, the game. So it's simply the variant is the weapon, the cell type is the room, and the gene is the murderer, and then the causality is the motive. You very much need to solve that, and you need to solve that at scale, because many diseases, especially the polygenic diseases, will have sometimes hundreds of those variants. Can you tell me a bit more about the technologies that you've been developing to actually explore the impact of these genetic variations on disease in in different cells? So Nucleum has a number of technologies simply to address those challenges, but also with very high precision and accuracy. So to find the right variant and to find the right cell type, we use machine learning. So simply machine learning was trained to tell us what is functional within the dark genome. And the model is telling us what happens if you flip a letter. So what happens if you have genetic change? This enables us to prioritize what are the potential functional variants that are disease causing and in which cell type. And as a company, we are a biology first company. So we very much confirm everything that we do experimentally. So we confirm those predictions very quickly in the lab. The next challenge after that is we gene is involved. And here the 3D genome analysis are coming uh, to the picture. And this is really based on the fundamental principle of what we discussed, how the genes are turned on and off. So the technology, and we are very much leading in that space, is enabling us to map the 3D genome structure and base per resolution. And finally, we have also a third technology that is enabling us to confirm the causality. And usually here you would use CRISPR-Cas9, you will introduce a genetic change to confirm the impact on the gene expression. And we have a completely alternative way of doing it, which is not requiring genetic engineering, and is done in primary cells, and it's also done at scale. So, for example, we're looking on lupus as one of the diseases that we investigated. And here we're looking on hundreds of those variants, mapping them through a large number of different immunocell types. And from that, we then looking for therapeutic interventions. And finally, what are your hopes for the, the future of this technology and where you want to get to with Nucleome? So our near-term goals is to really build a, a drug discovery pipelines. So we already discover a number of targets that we are very excited about. For a number of them, we already confirmed the causality. So we confirm that the variant impacts indeed the function of the dark genome, impacts the expression of the gene and also the protein level in the specific cell types that uh, we identified. And very much we we starting the journey of uh, building those drug discovery programs. And the aim is that we also uh, develop assets, so develop drugs against it, and we go to clinic. So this is the key for the organization is that we really translate the outcomes and the insights from the platform to something that can create impact and help patients. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. 
You can find out more information about this episode on our website, geneticsunzip.com. And do come and say hello to us over on Twitter. We're still there at Genetics Unzip. A heads up that the Genetic Society Spring Meeting, held in collaboration with the British Society for Developmental Biology, will be running from the 15th to the 18th of April at the University of Warwick on the theme of developmental genetics. The deadline for abstract submissions is the 9th of February, and early bird registration is now open for in-person or virtual attendance. Head over to the events page on the Genetic Society website at genetics.org.uk or follow the link on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com for more information and to secure your spot. Danuta and her team at Nucleome certainly have their work cut out trying to pinpoint the important genetic variations in the dark genome that affect gene activity and are linked to disease. That's because an awful lot of DNA in the human genome really doesn't seem to do anything much at all. As we've already mentioned several times in this episode, less than 2% of the human genome is actually made of protein coding sequences, what we would call genes. And while there are undoubtedly important control switches and structural elements in the other 90% of the dark genome, that still leaves a lot of non-coding DNA unaccounted for. So, is it just junk? And if not, then what is it doing? And how much is actually doing anything? This question came to a head in 2012 with the publication of data from ENCODE, a massive research project studying many characteristics of the human genome at a molecular level. The team concluded that 80% of the human genome was functional in some way, based on the detection of transcription, the copying of DNA into a molecular messenger called RNA, and particular proteins. The study made headlines around the world, but not everyone was convinced. One of them is Larry Moran, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Toronto, who for many years has argued that the vast majority of the human genome really is just junk after all. He's now laid out his thinking and the evidence supporting it in a book entitled What's in Your Genome? Why 90% of Your Genome is Junk, described by a certain science writer and genetics podcaster as a thought-provoking and pugnacious book that will make you wonder afresh at the molecular intricacies of life. So, when I got the chance to sit down for a chat with him, I had to start by asking him the obvious question. What is in our genome? We've pretty much nailed down the amount of coding region. It's about 1%. So about 1% of the human genome codes for proteins. Then everyone makes the mistake of assuming, oh, only 1% is genes. Well, that's just not true. The average protein coding gene consists mostly of introns. The average protein coding gene is 40 kb long. 38 to 40% of the genome is made up of protein coding genes, okay, which consists of a small amount of coding region and a large amount of introns. So right away, people don't even ask themselves, what is a gene? You know, a gene is not just the little bits of, of coding region in this great big long stretch that's transcribed. A gene, the only reasonable definition of a gene is a DNA sequence that's transcribed to produce some kind of functional RNA, which then be processed, right? So first of all, 40% of our genome is protein coding genes. How many people know that? Very few, right? Now, most of it's introns. So what are the introns? What are they doing? Are they real? Are they junk? Well, you can make a darn good case that it's mostly junk. 
It's full of little bits of hunks of transposons and even a few pseudogenes. The sequences aren't conserved. The links aren't conserved. I mean, it looks like junk by all reasonable criteria, right? So right away, we've, we've established that you know, 40% of the uh, genome is protein-coding genes. It's mostly introns, and the introns are junk. Then you've got all the intragenic stuff, which is transposons and bits of uh, repetitive DNA. We, you know, we knew back in the late 1960s that half the human genome was uh, repetitive DNA. And so where did this myth arise that those scientists were incredibly stupid? They thought, oh my God, there's only 2% protein coding regions in the genome. All the rest must be junk. We knew about regulatory sequences. I mean, you know, there's these guys, Jacob and Minot, you know, got a Nobel Prize, you know, it, it's, and that's so annoying. How would you actually then define junk DNA? Is it just purely it's stuff that we can't ascribe a function to or stuff that could be got rid of and wouldn't make a difference? Yeah, so it's difficult to come up with a precise definition of anything in biology, right? And so there's always uh, exceptions. Always. There's always there's always exceptions. Okay, but by and large, junk DNA is DNA that can be deleted from the sequence without having any effect on the survivability of the species or the or the individual. So it's totally dispensable DNA. You could get rid of it and there's no effect. I think we get into an interesting argument when we move from okay, let well, we can define junk in some ways. I think the more interesting thing to do is to try and define what functional means. I think that really is the nub of it because there are definitely some people who go, well, just because something isn't conserved, it might have the same function. And, you know, we see that across evolution, that things can have different evolutionary origins, but they're, you know, they're serving the same function. Yes. So how, how do we, how do we, when it comes to DNA, actually define a function? So if you have, if you've identified a, a DNA sequence that say encodes one of the enzymes of the glycolytic pathway, uh, it's been well characterized, you mutagenize it, it doesn't work anymore. I mean, there's so clear cases where we know a heck of a lot about whether something is functional or not. So the ambiguous cases are where we don't know what the product is or exactly what it does. So then you have to ask, do we have any good reason to believe that this stretch of DNA actually serves a function? Well, you can mutate it or delete it and see whether it has any effect or not. But, you know, you can't do those experiments with 90% of the genome. So the quick criteria is, is it conserved? And there are very few examples of sequences with well-defined, well-understood functions that aren't conserved. So until someone comes up with multiple examples of that, uh, let's just go with that criterion. So if I was to actually pin you down on it and say, okay, you know, in, in your opinion, what proportion of the human genome do you think really is junk? If we were designing a minimum viable genome for a human, you're like, right, we can, we can strike out this much. How, how much do you think that would, would be? The subtitle of my book is 90% of your genome is junk. You know, you, you have to step back and look at the big picture. What, is, there, is there any logical reason why we should assume that 90% of the non-conserved human genome actually has some mysterious function that we don't know about. No, there isn't. In fact, we have lots and lots of evidence and circumstantial evidence and direct evidence that it just doesn't have a function. So 
It doesn't. And that's perfectly consistent with my worldview of what biochemistry and, and genomes uh, and molecular biology looks like. But if it conflicts with your worldview, you know, if you've been raised by Richard Dawkins to think that everything is there, everything that's present there is to drive an organism to the top of some adaptive peak, then all of the data that's coming in conflicts with that worldview. And so then you develop really bizarre rationalizations to try and make them consistent rather than just say, oh, maybe my view is wrong. It's curious that Dawkins obviously being very famously an atheist, it's almost a quasi-religious viewpoint. It's like, well, it must be in there for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. Yes. Which is the sort of, you know, God God wills it. Yeah. So I, at one point I was working on another book. The working title was Evolution by Accident, in which I kind of lumped adaptationists like the, the Dawkins view in with intelligent design. They're both advocating design for the wrong reasons, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, it's true that you know wings are for flying and you know stomachs are for digesting. Of, of course, there are there are adaptations, but not everything is an adaptation. There are just random changes that happen in your genome, and and a lot of your genome could be simply junk. Again, my bugaboo is not so much that I think I'm right and everybody else is wrong, although I do, <laughs> but that. The alternative point of view, the one I'm expressing, doesn't even make it into the literature. Everyone just assumes that, oh my God, we haven't found a function for this, but there must be one somewhere. But actually, all the function we need is probably in that 10%. That's what the evidence shows as far as I'm concerned. So I think 10% is functional, but we only know the function of you know half of that. So 10% is conserved. Uh, we can identify functions for about 4% of the genome. So that leaves still a lot of new things to be discovered, right? Is there like one thing you would really want a student or researcher in working in genetics today to really understand about the human genome? Um, one thing, wow. I, I would like all students working in this field, sort of molecular biology in general, to understand more about evolution, to understand that not everything is an adaptation. Natural selection isn't anywhere near as powerful as they think it is, and some things just don't work perfectly. And so there's no reason to develop adaptationist thinking about everything. Have an open mind. Recognize that you know, maybe this little tiny effect you see on some signal transduction pathway may be irrelevant. At least consider that possibility, okay? This little transcript may not be important. It may not do anything. Don't just assume that because it's there, it does something. Understand that there's another possibility. That's all for now. If you're curious to learn more about junk DNA and gene regulation, we've touched on these topics in previous episodes, such as does size matter when it comes to your genes, genes or junk, and the immortal question, are you more special than an onion? It's also something I covered in depth in my first book, Herding Hemingway's Cats, Understanding How Our Genes Work. 
My thanks to Larry Moran, Danuta Yazerska and Naomi Allen for speaking with me. You can find out more about UK Biobank and apply to use their data, if you're a legit research scientist, at ukbiobank.ac.uk. There's more information about Nucleome and their quest to decode the dark genome at nucleome.com. And you can find Larry's book, What's in Your Genome, in all good and all evil bookstores. And of course, links to all of these can be found on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. We'll be back next time with our final episode of the year, bringing you some of our favourite bits from interviews that we just couldn't squeeze into our regular episodes. And as a reminder, please do pop over to fill in our short listener survey at geneticsunzip.com slash survey. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, while it still exists, at geneticsunzip. And please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. It really makes us happy. And it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written and presented by me, Katani. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music is composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle, audio production is by Emma Werner and our producer is Sally LePage. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>